Hey friends, and welcome to season three of Quit Your Day Job. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. In this podcast, you'll learn all about the fascinating jobs that people do, some that you might never have even heard of, as you contemplate your own possibilities. I started this podcast because I've always been fascinated by jobs. I even quit my own day job to spend a year as an intern, and you can read all about it in my new book, My What If Year. It's out now and can be bought everywhere books are sold. Or head over to my website, aliciafmiranda.com, for more info. In these times of quiet quitting and great resignations and loud quitting or whatever, I think more people than ever want to follow their passion. Everyone on this podcast has, and I encourage you to do the same. Today is a very special day for me. It is the pub day for my what if year. And so I have a very special episode for you today. A friend and the first blurb, blurber, blurber, can we say blurber, of my book, Alicia Menendez. You may know her as the host of American Voices with Alicia Menendez on MSNBC. She is also the host of the Latina to Latina podcast. Alicia has been dubbed Miss Millennial by the Washington Post, Journalism's New Gladiator by Elle, and a content queen by Mary Claire. And her interviews and reporting have appeared on ABC News, Bustle, Fusion TV, PBS, and Vice News. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and two daughters. And I loved talking to her. I hope you love listening in. So, Alicia, I'm a little bit intimidated to be on this. I'm intimidated. I'm intimidated. (laughs) Because you interviewed me for your podcast a couple weeks ago, and you're such... I mean, this literally what you do for a living is interview people and do it brilliantly. You ask such thoughtful, deep questions. And we're going to talk about the Jersey Shore versus Miami Beach on this podcast. Yes. Okay, good. Are you are you ready for it? I'm 100%. This is the conversation I've been waiting to have my entire life. Yes, thank, thank you. God, here we are. And and maybe we'll need to bring in some more Andrew Lloyd Webber spam too. And then people <laughs> can listen to all that. They'll have like a crossover episode. They'll listen to me on your podcast, you on my podcast, and they'll finally... <laughs> figure out why Cuban men are so obsessed with Andrew Lloyd Webber, which I mentioned to my dad after we spoke. And he was like, yeah, it's kind of true. (laughs) It is. I think it's because it's like, it's masculine enough. You're like, yeah, I'm a man who loves musicals. A funny story before we start on your this or that, which is my husband and I were once with his younger cousin seeing Batman live, which was a sort of musical version of Batman with like a lot Mm -hmm. of like explosions and things like that. And my husband comes out of the men's room and he said, I just peed next to Andrew Lloyd Webber. And I was like, one, what is Andrew Lloyd Webber doing at Batman Live? But two, how wonderful is it in this relationship that you now recognize Andrew Lloyd Webber? That's 100% my influence on him. So then, of course, I chased Andrew Lloyd Webber out of the men's room to tell him what an important impact he had on my life and asked him how he was enjoying Batman Live. That was like a real, so real intimate for me. It was a real highlight for me. It was not, he was not in the men's room when I asked him that question. He was zipped up already. So moving on to your episode, we're going to start with a little this or that. Question one, as I have previewed for you, Jersey Shore or Miami Beach? Jersey Shore. Why? One, because I grew up going to the Jersey Shore as a kid. So it's just 
baked in nostalgia for me. Nice. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, I can like feel the Jersey shore in my body. Like the way when you're a kid, the waves sort of like pull you and then you like go to sleep at night. You may not know this because you didn't grow up going to the Jersey shore, but no, it's I like, then <laughs> when you go to sleep at night, you can sometimes like, as you're drifting off to sleep, you can like feel the undertow grab you. And it's mm. this wild thing. Miami beach is beautiful. But as you know, if you live in Miami, you kind of don't go to Miami beach. Very true. All that often. I did a lot as a 16 year old with my fake ID that said uh, Amber <laughs> K. Martin on it. But oh, wait, um, are we talking about like social well, Miami? No, I, beach? no, I would say beach, beach or the beach itself. Okay. Beach, beach. I, stick by, I stick by my answer, okay. Jersey Shore. All right. Question two Pastelitos de guava or de queso? De guava all the way. I also would add that I think a pastelito that you eat in the Miami International Airport is perhaps the best pastelito you want. Cause it's like you step off the plane and like the smell just like hits you in the face. So good. Oh, so good. I love it. We it's also my have first stop when I go back to Miami. Yeah. How could it not be? Mm. Do you have a, an, uh, another pastry that you really love? Is there like a New Jersey Cuban pastry that's really good that I don't know about? No, I mean, we have all the same pastries. It's more, we have a place uh, near where I live called El Phoenix mm. that when my husband, who's a Miami Cuban, when I moved him to New Jersey and had to introduce him to the delights of being a New Jersey Cuban, <laughs> I had to like find a proper bakery to be like, see, you can still eat croquetas. It's going to be fine. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Oh, I'm glad it measures up. I have no doubt it does. Although that's oh, me. No, he, he would like to jump on this episode to clarify that it in no way measures up, but he's wrong. Okay. I think we can, I mean, obviously I'll be the judge of that. Maybe I'm going to need to make a pit stop to El Phoenix and try, try their food. I'll there. bring some to your book party. Okay. Done. <laughs> That's already done. <laughs> See, and this is now why we've had this whole podcast. We could stop talking now because I kind of <laughs> got what I wanted out of it. All right. Number three, are you an early bird or a night owl? I am definitely an early bird. And those, I think that's something that switched about me over the course of my life. Like I used to be one of those crazy kids who would like stay up doing my homework and watching ER after my parents had gone to bed. <laughs> but I've now become a person who likes to wake up early and get the day going. But you also know how it is because then you have kids and then you like crash and then you're like asleep with them in their twin size bed. Are you up before your kids most days? No, I'm up with my kids, but I still have one that's a pretty early riser. So okay. she like, she's like, muffins breakfast. <laughs> what day is it today? <laughs> we are at the pre-adolescent phase and the kids are starting to sleep a little bit later, like on the school vacations. And I'm like, I'm so close. I'm so close to everybody in my house being asleep until 930 in the morning, which is kind of my ultimate goal. But then it's going to flip and you're going to be like, you need to get out of bed. You have to go to school. And I'm not looking forward to that. That That is happening on school days sometimes. And uh, I did I got both my children alarm clocks because I woke up my son Brilliant. a week or two ago to me singing Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You. And he said it was the worst morning of his entire life and that I was never allowed to do that again. So, so nice when they get old and they're just so grateful for all the things that you do for them. It's all ahead of you. <laughs> all right. So TV or podcasting? You mean to do it or to consume it? Mm, both. I love TV and I love podcasting, but I love the intimacy of podcasting. And I like the fact that podcasting, I think gets you a lot closer to who, who I am and who the other person is. Like it's mm -hmm. one of the things I noticed. One of the reasons I started doing podcasting was because when I would interview someone on television, especially when I'd interview someone like who had a common denominator with me, most of the time it was like another Latina because I worked in some spaces that were focused on Latino audience. 
like you do an interview and the interview was great and you thought the interview was great. And then people would take off their microphones and their posture would change. And they would all of a sudden really just start talking to you. And I was right. like, no, 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 This is the conversation I wanted to have. Like not the formal conversation we just had. So podcasting. And finally, not a this or that question, but just a question. Who comes to mind if I said to you, pick your favorite interview that you've done? That's probably impossible. You could narrow the time, like maybe in the last six months or something like that. You know, I always go back to this interview I did with comedian, sitcom star, Cristela Alonso. I was at Fusion and she was at ABC. She was going to launch her sitcom, Cristela. And the thing about an interview is like, you can prepare all you want, but if the other person shows up, and they don't really show up like they're mailing it in, which is what you get with a lot of celebrities when they're on junkets. Like they just, they don't want to be there right. or they're giving you the same answer they've given everybody else. Sometimes someone shows up and they're like really there for you in the room. And that's how she was. Like she was so excited about the fact that she finally had this big sitcom, that she was treating every opportunity like this like perfect treasure. And it was a great interview. And I'd love to say that's because of something I did, but it was because she like really showed up. That's so funny because I found her because of you. You had posted something about her on Instagram and then I immediately watched like all of her content that I could get so my good. hands on. And now I'm a super fan. Like, I think she's amazing. But how nice that you kind of kept that up. How long ago was it that you interviewed her when her sitcom was out? It was, was like a while back. probably, yeah. I mean, she, she probably would be better on the time than I am, but it's like probably seven or eight years. Wow. And yeah, and it's like, it, it was, we became friends and the sitcom was both a success, but then it also got canceled. And so it was like interesting to be with someone through that ride of like mm. when the thing you think is going to be your vehicle sort of doesn't go where you thought it was yeah. going to go. She's so talented though. One she day, is. one day when we make a movie of my book, I want her to play me. Yes. Manifesting that in the universe. Yes. I mean, we could also <laughs> just like call her right now and ask her, but sure. Yes. Go ahead okay, and manifest. Sure. <laughs> you survived the this or that slash question round. Thank well you. Done. So we have known each other for a long time with a kind of gap in between where I've really just been watching your career unfold on mostly social media, in spite of the fact that you are married also to uh, someone I went to middle school with. And I know the whole thing is just... Not just someone you went to middle, middle school, school with. Middle school Tell crush. Middle school crush. I still have the yearbook. I'm actually going to send you his yearbook entry that he wrote in my yearbook in yes. grade. Yeah, I'm doing Please. that. Um, Does he have, still have sociopath that. handwriting? I think so. <laughs> Although who didn't in eighth grade? I mean, let's be honest. But I feel like you've just, you've done so many incredible things. Your career has so many pieces to it. So why don't you start by describing your job for everybody who's listening? Great question. So I work at MSNBC. I am an anchor and a correspondent there, which means that I have a show Saturdays and Sundays, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern, only on MSNBC called American <laughs> Voices. And I think of it as a place to uh, give context to stories that are happening, right? Like you get the news on your phone, you get your processing news constantly, but 
I think of my job as uh, connecting dots from story to story that you might not see, uh, stepping back and looking at larger patterns mm-hmm. and sort of curating a conversation with people who are smart and may have slightly different perspectives, like someone who has been in Congress, someone who is currently in Congress, someone who's a journalist who's trying to dig through all of the facts, do deep investigative work, and very often people who are primary voices in a fight, right? Like, so recently I had a mom who has a trans kid in Texas on, and we had an entire conversation about, do you stay? Do you go? Mm. What do you do with the privilege of knowing you're a person who has the possibility of going, Mm. but not everybody does, Um, you know, when you're being threatened by the state to have your kid taken away. And so that's, that to me is the work. I also sometimes get to tell stories in the field, which I love. You know, I also sometimes do long form interviews, but the bulk of it is that Saturday and the Sunday. And then in addition to that, I have a podcast, Latina to Latina, which you have been on. (laughs) And, and I love that because it is so one-on-one and it is so intimate. And I just, I love being able to connect with other sort of fascinating women and hear their story. So we studied women's studies together in college. So take me on your journey from graduating from Harvard with a degree in women's studies to where you are now. I think you and I probably did women's studies for a very similar reason, which is it was interdisciplinary, which meant I I wasn't make up my mind. (laughs) Right. I wasn't willing to fully be a government major or fully be a sociology major. I think they both also required more math than women's studies. Mm. And so I had this degree and I, I, I originally thought my entire life that I was going to graduate from college, go to law school and run for office. Mm. That was my plan. There was no plan B. There was wow. just plan A. And I was so certain about the plan A. I was even snobby about people who did not have a plan. I was like, well, I mean, what are you doing? What's and, wrong with you? <laughs> And exactly. And straight out of school, I worked on uh, the John Corzine gubernatorial race in New Jersey. And I, you know, the type of job that everyone has out of school where you're making an Excel spreadsheet that you don't understand what the Excel spreadsheet's for, but you just know you're not allowed to mess up the Excel spreadsheet and you're going (laughs) through files. And, And what was interesting to me being on a campaign where campaigns have a message and they're trying to push the message constantly is realizing how much power the media had to actually determine what it was that people were going to be talking about and what were going to be the contours of the race. And I was sort of like the first one, I was like, what are they doing over there? Mm. Like, what is that? And I, after that race was done, we won. I think this is how old we are. I think I got a job off Craigslist at a station called RNN TV in Westchester, New York, where what they needed was a booker for their political show. A booker is the person who books guests on a show, who finds interesting voices and then coordinates their getting to studio and being on set. And I learned everything I knew in that initial phase about TV from that job because I would ask a million questions, right? I would be like, what's what's a sod? That's sound on tape. What's an MOS? That's man on the street. Well, how do you get them? How many do you get? How do you put this together? Like, how are you telling these stories? And it was a crash course in learning television, even though I was doing one tiny part of it. Right. And I, I went back and forth in and out for a while. 
from nonprofit world. I did Hispanic voter engagement. I did youth voter stuff. And in the process of doing all of that, I often got to be on TV as an analyst, as the type of person that I used to book. Right. And so I was on Fox and CNN and MSNBC. And at some point there was this woman, Josanne Lopez, who saw me, she was at CNN. She was in the talent department and she brought me in for a meeting and I was like, this is it. And she put me in lots of different sort of pilots and things and nothing ever worked out in part because I was probably 24. And in as much as, you know, youth as an asset in television, it, it also can be a liability when you're mm. being positioned as an expert. And she got then hired at HuffPost Live, which was the streaming network that the Huffington Post launched. She brought me in as one of her first auditions. I went in, I sort of understood this is it. I nailed that audition because it was supposed to be a conversation. It wasn't supposed to be like, I'm an anchor person reading an anchor, right. uh, reading a script. And um, she hired me and that it took me a really long time to make that jump. I'm condensing it in the storytelling. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't represent your entire episode, but it took probably six years to go from working in nonprofits and doing television as a secondary piece of what I was doing to doing it full time. And that year was amazing because they had all of us producing and hosting, which meant that you really had to understand sort of the nuts and bolts of how it all gets made. And then from there, I got hired at Fusion to launch my own show, which was this ABC Univision cable station. And I got to work with Jorge Ramos, which was amazing. For those of you who grew up watching Jorge, yeah. is he as, as kind and generous as you hope he would be if you were to meet him as a colleague. And, um, and I spent a few years there. And then there were the weird years in between that we, a lot of us have when we have kids where I was like freelancing advice and PBS and doing this and doing that and just trying to stay in it. And, and then I got offered a job at MSNBC and that is where you find me now. So what is the process of like preparing for your show? So how much input do you have? Are you working with a broader production and writing team? Are you really kind of leading the agenda? I assume that that's happening throughout the week in the lead up to like the production. Tell me a little bit about what that's actually like. Yeah, that's a great question. So it's a little funky because it's weekends, right? And so you're planning out on a Wednesday or a Thursday what you think the news will be on Saturday or Sunday, which means you have a very rough plan in place. So we mm -hmm. get on a call, we sort of say, these are all the stories that we're clearly going to want to cover. What are sort of the extra stories that we're going to want to cover or the things that we know will hold until Saturday or Sunday? Right. And then, you know, get on the, with a broader team. They do a broader set of pitches. You sort of select which ones you think are actually going to work. And you do that over and over again on Thursday and Friday. Wow. And then on Saturday, very often you wake up and it's like, surprise, here's a <laughs> big news story or even even more to the point, like there have been times we have an entire show that's baked and I'll be walking to set and I'll get a call on my cell phone that's like, hey, the New York Times just got Trump's taxes. So we have to blow up the entire show and we're going to see which guests we can repurpose. And we're going to. Wow. And and that to me is where some of the the magic happens because the stakes are really high. This is a story that a lot of people are invested in, even though we are generalists and we know a little about a lot of things and a lot about some things in that moment, it doesn't matter. You have to be super curious about whatever that story is and think about it. Like, what are my core questions about this? Because mm -hmm. they likely mirror the audience's core question. And how do I bring enough context and expertise without stepping in the way 
of the guests that truly have deep, deep expertise on this topic. Are the hours like insane? Or I feel like there was a time where I would see tweets from you and you were up at like 4am or something like that. in your maybe in your previous job, what what's your yeah. like work life balance like? I think the, I think the thing for me is I don't have a consistent schedule. So if so I'm fine with that and it mm-hmm. doesn't bother me to do, fill in for someone on 11 p.m. and be up until 1230 and then to wake up at 4 a.m. and then have like four days where I'm off. Like it's sort of grab and go. It works really well for me right now because I have two little kids. I have a three-year-old and I have a six-year-old. So most mornings I get to put them on the bus and most afternoons I get to take them off the bus yes. and then do homework and make dinner. And then all of a sudden mommy's on calls and out the door. Right. And and weekends are funky because I head into work in the middle of the afternoon, but they don't know anything different. Mm-hmm. So it it works for now. I think it gets harder when all of a sudden they have soccer practice in the middle of the day and there are more there's more programming and more things right. that mommy's missing and stuff that's under you know, control mm. yeah and it's like it's also it's like it's there's time for me and the kids and my husband and I think the truth is there's just not a lot of time outside of that mm-hmm. like that to me is one of the things that no one tells you about growing up but it's like if you pride yourself on being a really good friend the amount of time and space you will have for that begins to it shrinks but it's so funny I do think it comes back I say this from now having kids who are 11 because I was just talking to my sister-in-law about this yesterday and she doesn't have any kids and her friends are starting to have kids and that's creating a bit of a divide in terms of who's got time for what and I said you know there's definitely a phase when my kids were little where I just like that was it I had no time for anything outside of my little family unit and my job and I felt like generally a pretty bad daughter, pretty bad sister, pretty bad yeah. friend. Mm-hmm. But I just, there was, there were not enough hours in the day. And now that my kids are older and they're so much more independent and they kind of have their own lives going on and their own worlds, all of that has come back in. And it's nice. A lot of my friends still have really little kids. So I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm here. What do you want me to do? I can do stuff for you now because I can be a good friend. I have that space again, but it went away for, it went away for a while for sure. And I totally, totally hear you on that. Yeah. I remember when I was reading your book, I was like, who does she think she is having martinis with her girlfriend? Like I was so envious of that time and space because that's the time and space that's missing right now. Yeah. Although I will say that that particular weekend that you're referring to, I think Rebecca had a nine month old. And so she had come to London from New York for 48 hours for this trip, like two nights. And Laura was traveling the world with a 10 month old, which I still cannot believe how she did that, but she was a very precocious 10 month old, (laughs) but you know, I mean, they, so they were out and like exhausted. And I was like, no, no, let's party. My kids are like eight, like we can go out in the town. So that's, that's funny because sometimes it goes the other way where those of us who have not gotten out in a while are like, we're going till five in the morning. (laughs) No, no, you need to go home and go to bed. You're done. You need to sleep. You need to sleep. So I, I actually did not know that like being a politician was your like goal forever. And I think that's fascinating because you know, obviously your dad's been in politics for most of your life, I think, if not all of it. And so you've seen that you didn't have that response of a kid wanting to do the exact opposite of what their parent did. You wanted to go into that field? 
I mean, both of my parents work in what I would call public service. And my mm. mom was a, she was a public school teacher. She later was a crisis counselor. She had been a sex ed teacher in the eighties, which meant amazing. we would like meet people. So amazing. And it's also such a wild time to be teaching sex ed, right? When all of a sudden, like she was contending with HIV and AIDS in a sort oh, of yeah. in real time where it's like, there was this virus that you were talking with kids about that you didn't fully understand and but we still go when we are at the grocery store, we'll run into students of hers. So be like, you taught me the only useful thing I learned in high school. And I'm like, why does this person have 10 kids, mom? Like, what did you teach them? <laughs> why were you teaching? What's happening here? So my mom was a public servant. I mean, yeah, my dad now is in the U.S. Senate. He was elected to the House in the 90s. But for most of my childhood, he was the mayor of Union City, New Jersey. Mm. And so it was like a very hyper-localized sense of service. And I just, I had this sense like, this is how you can be useful in the world. This is how you can be of service. People have have challenges, problems, and the government can be an agent of good that can help people sort of meet the needs and close those gaps. And so to me, it was just like, well, why would you want to do anything else? Like if you could, if you could help other people in such a macro way, which is what my dad was doing, I knew that I didn't want to do direct service, which was what my mom did. There just didn't seem to me to be anything nobler, but that's also because I hadn't considered that there were possibly other theories of change, that you can change the world in a lot of ways. I think in some ways, like it was a very myopic way of of seeing things. And did watching, you know, particularly your dad who was mayor and then, you know, eventually senator and with all of his roles in between being in the public eye, which is now something you are very much in the public eye, although you are not a politician. Did that scare you away from it? Is that like a necessary evil in the job? Is it something you enjoy? Like, what are your feelings about being a public figure? When I was younger, I think I didn't understand how high the stakes were, Mm. right? Like sort of the value of privacy. Cause when you're young, it's like, like, I don't know, like, and definitely as I got older, it seemed to me that the trade-off became clear. And I think it was both vis-a-vis sort of privacy and being a public person, but also vis-a-vis being a parent. I mean, like, I like I'm a very hands-on mom. I want to be with my kids as much as possible. I feel like the time in which they're little is actually a pretty small period of time. And I didn't want to miss any of that. And like, whether you're in a state legislature and you're commuting to Trenton or Tallahassee or you're commuting to DC, like there's just, there are trade-offs and you miss a lot of it. And, and to your point, I didn't really get out from under being a public person because I now in some ways I'm still a public person, but Mm -hmm. I also think like lots of us are public people now. Like Mm -hmm. I think the because of social media, there are so many people who have these forward-facing roles that like the pool has expanded of who has to contend with this. That's such a good point. I actually ran into this like woman who's like a local Edinburgh bookstagrammer. And I was like, oh, hey. And then I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't actually know you in real life. I just follow you on Instagram and this is weird, but hello. And I enjoy your book reviews. (laughs) But it's just like, she's, you know, Look, got a kind of relatively small following, but I like what she does. She's a public figure to me. So she's very good. So you wrote a fantastic book, which I just reread called The Likeability Trap. It came out a few years ago, pre-COVID, pre-a lot of things. It was a terrible time to launch a book. (laughs) When when, it was 20, was it 2019? 
It was like no October, November of 2019. Yeah. Would you, if you were writing it today, would you do it differently? Would you do it the same way you did that? Oh, okay. So originally I imagined writing like an eat, pray, love for likability, mm. where I would, as a person who cares a lot about being well-liked, you know, do yoga, eat gelato, learn to care less. What I learned through the book publishing process, I wonder if you had any of this in your experience, was that for memoir, people want you to reveal a lot. Mm. Like what I sort of thought was intimacy and vulnerability did not qualify as intimacy and vulnerability in the eyes of book publishers. Mm. And I met an amazing editor who was like, I think you have a really good seed of an idea here. And I think what this needs to be is a workplace book. And she helped me. Re- Interesting. So you wrote it initially as a memoir. I wrote a proposal for it as okay. more of a memoir. And what she did was she gave me a way where it's like, I could still bring in a lot of my personal narrative mm-hmm. and the way I came to it, but I could interview other people, which is what I'm comfortable doing. Yeah, I could bring in research and find threads and I could apply it to the place where the stakes are higher. And it really did change the way I thought about the whole question, right? Like as someone who cares very much about being well-liked, I thought an Instagram would have you believe that the answer is just learning to care less and let go. Mm. But at work, that's not really how it functions. Like people like doing business with people they like. People like working on teams with people they like. And so this, this question of how you contend with that became much more interesting to me and the double bind it puts women in. And, you know, there are a lot of women who don't care about being well-liked and they pay a price Mm. for violating the expectation that all women everywhere should care. And so that became interesting to me. If I did it again, I would just, I'd be looser about it. I'd have more fun. It's like, you know, you raised your kids in tandem because you had twins, but the second kid, you're like, it's fine. (laughs) Eat a pop for breakfast. I don't know. Like, and you realize it doesn't like fundamentally change the way that they grow up. It's the same with the book. Like being like, no, I've got to get in this last HBS study. It's like, nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody cares. Nobody needs more proof from you. We get research. You want to be liked. We get it. I got it. Where are you now in your likability journey? Like as a human? Yeah, I still want to be liked. I don't think that will ever go away. Are you having a good time, Alicia? Are you liking me right now? I do. I am actually. I'm having a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, I still want to be liked. I think the big things that I learned for me were that I am a person because I it's so important to be well liked and to be amiable and easy is that sometimes what was happening at work was I had like be let things be easy, like say yes to things, right? Mm-hmm. Someone would be like, oh, I'm going to go write this press release about your new project. And I'd be like, great. They'd be like, any notes? I'd be like, no, like I'm sure it's going to be great. And it's like, now I've learned to be like, yes, I do have notes. Like here are the things that I am going to expect and want in this. Let me set my expectations up front so that instead of being easy, 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 and then exploding on the back end yeah. when it doesn't meet expectations that I never laid out, we are together on this journey beginning to end. So that has been tremendously helpful. I find it just like really helpful. I have like a WhatsApp chat with some of my girlfriends and I find the fact that I have a peer group really helpful so Mm -hmm. that sometimes I can bring things to them and be like, is this me? Is this my manager? And they're like, no, that's you. Like they really, you know, like people who know me, see me in my full potential and are able to say like, no, that's complete garbage. Like just ignore that. 
or sometimes you get feedback that really is constructive and helpful. And it's for me as a highly sensitive person, helpful to have other people who I trust were able to help me process it. It makes such a difference. And I think age helps, but your book came, it really framed things for me at a time in a way that I had not thought about them. And particularly being as I was at the time in a service business with clients who were trying very hard to do good with their philanthropy Mm -hmm. and what they were doing. And feeling really, I can, I can think now of so many instances in my past where I did not push back, where I should have spoken up and said something was a bad idea or somebody should have done something else. And I just, that, that it was such a part of it. It was like, ability was such a part of it. And I had never really thought about it in that way. I think you framed it so well. So go, the book is still available. Go out and buy it. If you have not read it yet, I highly recommend it. It's very, very Yes. Good. Or you can also, um, get the audiobook where you can hear me nine months pregnant breathlessly read you <laughs> an audiobook. How did you do that? Nine months pregnant. It was fine. I think I haven't listened to it. People seem to like it. People seem to not <laughs> notice like that do I can't like catch it? my breath. <laughs> oh, but that's not wait, you, wait, let me prepare you for this, Alicia. Which is you are going to get reviews, most notably on Amazon. Oh God. And there are going to be people who love this book. They'll come in early, mm-hmm. but there's going to be at least one person who thinks it's garbage. Yeah. And there will also be people who review it as though it's a product. Like someone gave it one star because the book cover was dirty. And I was like, um, <laughs> I understand that you think you're like reviewing the the seller, but you're actually reviewing me, the right, you know, and I now can't get out from under this one star review. So it's like funny. Cause it's like, it's three years later. I still go on, still check it Do out you? periodically. Yeah. I, I actually can't, told my like husband, it's... I didn't want to read any of the reviews and that he could go through and look, but not tell me if there were any bad ones. <laughs> I was like, just it's pull out much, the good ones. That's all I really want to hear. That is a much healthier way <laughs> than what I have done. You seem very well adjusted. Well, I'm real. I think I'm just going in with blinders. I'm like, I only want to hear nice things from nice people. And if you don't like the book, I'm that's sorry. also that's the right. It's the right thing because it's like it's it's one, done. It's I can't change it now. <laughs> it's done, and it's like not everything is for everyone. And I think that was actually at the core of my journey about likability, which is like I am not for everyone. And that is okay. Mm. There are people who don't like Oprah. There are people who don't like Beyonce. Like, I don't understand how these things are possible, (laughs) but but they exist. And so it's like, if that is possible, then of course it is possible that there are people in the world for whom me, Alicia Menendez, not their cup of tea. Fine. I mean, they're wrong, but fine. Yes. But but fine. Yeah. Fine. They're out there. We don't need them. (laughs) And that's 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 a good thing with the book, which is like, it's about it finding its audience and the person it was intended for. And there's this counterweight, which is you will have someone who writes you and says, I was at this pivotal point in my life where your book made all the difference. And that that feedback is just so much more important than the person who's like, this is drivel. These are the ones I used to listen to. I have printed out Yours was the first blurb for my book that came in and it's printed and up on my wall because it was really nice and it was really uh, keeping it up there. So uh, this has been amazing. It's like a bodega where it's like your first dollar bill on the wall. That one and my first review, which was a good review. As long as those two are there, I can just go back to them. I also have a video that I made my son make when he was feeling particularly guilty about how he had behaved that day where he says, I love you so much, mommy. And I just want you to know you're the best mom in the world. And every time he's like a little bit of a shit, I play the video for him and me. And that's okay. That's my good, that's my good review. I'm like, I don't care what you're doing now. This happened. You liked me once and you're going to like me again. 
no backsies. Yeah, this is why this is not a parenting podcast. <laughs> this has been amazing. I just, I, I, I just love, I love that we're like back in touch. I love being able to talk I know, to you. Me too. I always it's so weird to see our names on screen together because our names have become more alike instead in of less alike. I know both AM. I know it's true. People will confuse. I'd be delighted actually if anybody confused me for you if they went out to buy my book and thought it was your book. So that would be great. (laughs) I always finish up with one final question, which is always about advice. I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are at inflection points in their career, thinking about making a career change. They're interested in lots of different fields. You know, you've got so many actually very rich and different areas where you could be offering advice to people. So I'm going to let you pick which one you want to do. It could be about likability. It could be about wanting to go into television or a broader kind of, you know, journalism, storytelling type role. But what advice do you have to the, my mother and the other five listeners of Quit Your Day Job? Oh my God, Mama Miranda. (laughs) I think it would be this, which is my pivot from nonprofit political world to television took much longer than I ever thought it was going to take when I was at the outset of it. And I would still say I'm not exactly where I would like to be. Mm. I think one of the things that I did not appreciate at the outset of that journey was how important security is to me, financial security, relationship security. Um, Like I am not a blow it all up and start fresh person. And I think having a very sort of clear sense of what you are willing to risk and what are non-negotiables for you would have allowed me to have been um, more honest about the timeline and the amount of time it was going to take me to get what I wanted um, because I wasn't willing to give up a regular salary and health insurance. I wasn't willing to pull what little money I had out of my 401k at the early part of my career to fund some type of adventure, which makes sense. I'm raised by like very working class people. That Mm. was not the type of risk taking that I was, that I was accustomed to. But I think like, that's okay. Like I did it in a way that is, that allowed me to hold these competing or these values that were in tension at the same time, which is like, I wanted to make a big move and I wanted to do something that I felt was more aligned with who I was and what I wanted and had to give to the world. But at the same time, I I didn't want to blow everything up and or do that. And it's like, there's a path forward for people like me. It just may take a little bit more time. That is such good advice. I love that. I think it could not be more true. You do not have to pivot 180 degrees all at once. Like, I think there are so many different ways to, you know, you could extend the timeline, but you can make the changes you want and still have those things that matter to you. Well, as usual, you're a genius full of great advice. Alicia, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. As usual. Thank you, Alicia. I love you. Thanks so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are produced by Zibby Audio and want to send a huge thanks to Zibby Owens, Chelsea Grogan, and the team at Texture Sound for their support. Don't forget to buy your copy of my What If Year, which is out now. You can also sign up for my mailing list on aliciafmiranda.com or find me on Instagram at aliciafmiranda. It's the best place to hear about future podcasts and, of course, memes about Gilmore Girls. And if you decide to quit your day job, please share that too. 